1: Readings and welcome to New Books in History. I am your host, Monica Black, and recently I had the very great pleasure of talking with Glenn Penny, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Iowa. Glenn is the author of Kindred by Choice, Germans and American Indians Since 1800, which was just published at the end of 2013 by UNC Press. Kindred by choice is really a transnational history par excellence. It takes as its subject the striking and enduring fascination of Germans for American Indians. Uh, If you've spent some time in Germany or among German friends, you may have noticed, and perhaps even remarked upon, the evidence of this fascination, examples of which might include the enormous diversity of hobbyist organizations in Germany that dedicate themselves to the study of the histories and languages of American Indian groups. Glenn Penny gives us the long history of the German interest in Native America, which starts with Alexander von Humboldt, the explorer, and novelists like James Fenimore Cooper, who was enormously popular in Germany, and ranges right across across two centuries and two continents, uh, North America on the one hand and Europe on the other. Kindred by Choice shows that German interest in American Indians was based on elective affinities, including the sense that Germans' deep past shared key elements with that of Native Americans, along with a certain conception of freedom and what Glenn poetically calls, quote, a melancholy sense of shared fate. I hope that you will enjoy our talk as much as I did. Hi, Glenn. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk to me about your wonderful new book, Kindred by Choice, Germans and American Indians since 1800. I've just been enjoying reading it enormously. Uh, I wonder if we could start out today by asking you a bit about yourself, about your biography, uh, uh, if you will, and then maybe you can segue into explaining to us how you came to the topic of this book.
2: Sure, okay. Um, I guess the thing I always people always ask me how I got interested in German history and I, I think the the answer to that is that I was my father was in the military and I was born in Germany. Um it was just sort of an accident. And I remembered that, of course. I it was always part of my biography when I would tell people about myself growing up and when I went to college I um I just signed up for some German history classes because I wanted to know more about it, and I really got into it. And I was actually in engineering school at the University of Colorado, and then um, one day my advisor in engineering told me that all these history classes were getting in the way of my studies, and I said, well, you know, actually, I think all of these engineering classes are getting in the way of my studies, and then I transferred over to uh, a degree in Central and Eastern European Studies, and and I liked that, and I still wasn't sure I was going to be a historian because I didn't really know what that meant. Um, so I, I went ahead and did a master's degree at the University of Colorado just to see how I liked it. And it turned out I liked it a lot. And uh, so I, I, I just packed my bags and moved to Germany so that I could you know, gain a, a confidence with the language, get to know more about what it is I wanted to study, and then uh, went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana and did a Ph.D. there. Um, so the project I did there was on museums and ethnography. And uh, originally I was really interested in questions of identity, but... In the 1990s, um, some of the most interesting questions, uh, or let me say interesting theoretical approaches to questions of identity were being done, and and things that had to do with visual culture and and gender, women's history, and uh, that's basically what I started to study, and then I just moved into this world of museums, and they took me places, first to uh, studying the history of East Germany and the uses of the past, how the past was rewritten in different political contexts in East and West Germany, and And then that sort of developed into this interest in the 19th century and and notions of German identity and visual culture and how it be displayed. And as I started to look into this, I thought at first I would go study history museums in the 19th century. And I realized there weren't any, (laughs) Um, that they actually got created around the turn of the century or even later, except for the the big one in Nuremberg. And and then I noticed that there were all these strange things called folke Museum, and I didn't really know what they were. And it turned out they were ethnographic museums. And that they were being created all over Germany in the 1860s and 70s, and and no one could tell me why. So I started digging into that, and the next thing I knew, I was doing a history of anthropology and ethnology based on four museums in four different cities, and um, this took me in directions that, really, the historiography in Germany wasn't going. I I mean, I was very interested in German's worldviews, but not colonialism or imperialism, because, ironically, it turned out it didn't play much of a role in this history. Um and as I did this work, I sort of moved on to rethinking the history of anthropology in general and moving into the history of science and also into museology and art institutions and things like that and and that book sort of developed and um, as the, the the odd thing about this is that um as I was there in Germany doing this work, and I'd noticed this before, I started to run into all these moments in German culture. It didn't matter if I was walking by a kindergarten or an open park or some other kind of display, or sometimes it was advertisements for music, and they were all about American Indians. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was really strange. And what was especially strange about this was that when I looked at the collections of all these ethnographic museums, there was not a lot about North America in them. I mean, there's tons of material from South America, Central America, Asia, everywhere, India, Africa. Uh, But North America was kind of absent, with the exception of the Berlin Museum, which had one tremendous um, exhibition. Um, But what I also knew is in the 19th century, it hadn't gotten much space. So I didn't really understand this, except when I, I knew two things. I knew that there was this broad cultural interest in American Indians, and I knew that the museums weren't capturing it which taught me actually after I wrote the first book not to trust such big institutions to necessarily tell you what's going on in a culture Mm. or what kind of interest they might have in other kinds of people. So the more I I thought about it, the more I I thought, well, how can one actually pursue this? And I ended up diving into uh, the book I wrote, which if I, uh, if I'd known at the outset how big a project it was going to be, I probably would have run scared, gone and done something else um, because I ended up Um, doing research all across the United States and all across Germany, and and very little of the um, research was institutionally bound. And what I mean by that is it's much easier, for example, to do um, archival research on a set of institutions because they produce a set of documents and archives that that are finite, and you can locate them. But when you start talking about um, cultural traits or things that run through cultures over a series of hundreds of years— It's really infinite. Um, You can trace that out. I I mean, just to give you an example, if you were to try to read all the books written by Germans about American Indians, well, you couldn't. Mm -hmm. If you put them end to end, there'd be too many probably for the normal person to read. And then once you did, I'm not sure really um, how you would actually um, organize the information you gained. Uh, So it's pretty overwhelming. And also working on two continents and delving into multiple historiographies that aren't just European and German, but also American and American Indian and indigenous studies it was pretty uh it was pretty challenging, but also I have to say incredibly fulfilling really exciting and I'm really glad I did it
1: well, I'm really glad you did it too and everyone who reads this book will feel the same way um, you were talking just a moment ago about moments and you know people who have spent time in uh, in in German settings will have ha- experienced similar moments where you come to the realization that Germans are very very fascinated by Native American peoples and um, one of the moments it seems that you had in in the writing of this book came I think in the early 2000s you say you say uh, in the book that you were at one point you, you were in Montana, you were at the Fort Peck Reservation, and a German man said, "If you want to understand the German affinity for American Indian people, you should quote read Tacitus." So I wonder if you can set the scene for us. What were you doing there in Montana? How did you come to meet this gentleman? And what did he mean when he said that if you want to understand Germans' fascination with American Indians, you have to read Tacitus?
2: Um, well, I, the, the moment actually took place in Berlin. I, w- I wasn't actually talking to him at Fort Peck. Um, a, he was a German guy who um, had spent a lot a lot of time in Fort Peck at the reservation Had actually been adopted into a family there. Um, and considered himself a member of the tribe. And, and I think, as I understand it, is recognized as such. Um, and I met him in Berlin when he had invited a number of people he knew from the reservation to come to Berlin and engage in lectures and performances. And uh, it was uh, it was kind of an, one of these ironic moments where lots of people come together and the people he invited didn't show up, um, which happens sometimes. You know, airplanes get missed and things like that. Uh, so we were just standing in a parking lot, and uh, Peter Boltz, who was the director of the American section of the Museum of Ethnology, as it's now called in Berlin, introduced me to him, and uh, And he listened to my interest, and then he basically said, you just have to read Tacitus. Um, and what he meant was essentially uh, what I later write about in the book, is that um, at the beginning of the 19th century, uh, not only were Germans and literate Germans in large numbers, reading um, James Fenimore Cooper's Leather Socking Tales, as well as thinking about the travels of Alexander von Humboldt and many of his imitators um, to North and Central and South America. But they had also started reading lots and lots of reproductions, various kinds of reproductions of Tacitus' books, um, particularly Gamania, and his discussion of German tribes, heroic discussions of German tribes, their defeats of the Romans, Um, Their successful resistance against Roman civilization, as well as um, characterizations of them, freedom-loving, strong, wild, uh, how tribes work, nation democracy, uh, things like that. And in a lot of ways, Tacitus then describes these ancient German tribes in the same way that Cooper is describing American Indian tribes. Um, In the same way, actually, the travelers, reporters, such as von Humboldt, are going to be uh, describing those people as well, or various kinds of people like that. So his point, which I think was very well taken and taught me a great deal, was that um, it all sort of fit together at the moment. And one read about historical Germans and one read about contemporary American Indians simultaneously with great interest and, for many people, with great profit.
1: Hmm. I very much liked the way that you sort of characterize the relationship between Germans and American Indians in your book as one of elective affinities, and certainly this, uh, this the sense that th- somehow the German past was a tribal one, and that it could sort of be linked in a certain way or had a certain parallel with the histories of of Native American peoples uh, is one of those elective affinities. You say in the book, uh, and I'm and I'm quoting now from the book uh, that. Some of these elective affinities are German polycentrism. It's a very interesting term, and I hope you'll talk about that a bit. Notions of tribalism, as I said a moment ago, a devotion to resistance, a mm-hmm. longing for freedom, and a melancholy sense of a shared fate. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about these various cultural affinities, elective affinities, um, and and kind of unpack some of those ideas for us and for the you know for the people who are listening.
2: Sure. Um- well, the, the one affinity, of course, is this notion of tribalism, which is or um, just something that people like Tilfan Rotten picked up on when they were trying to figure out uh, um, how a, a number of well-known Jewish intellectuals were making arguments about the inclusion of groups of Jews in German culture at the end of the nineteenth century. What he noticed very quickly was that these intellectuals, um, like a lot of the people, were engaged in focus sikkologi, which was a, a a very strong, bold uh, movement, social and, and cultural intellectual movement at the end of the 19th century, were arguing that, you know, Jews were part of the German tribes. And they saw that this federated character of Germanness, so to speak, which had been transferred into the new imperial Germany, um, offered a place for Jews to make a claim for being one of the various different varieties of Germans. and. This becomes important for a lot of reasons, because if you think of German national history not as something that's created in 1871, that built on past governmental structures, which don't stem necessarily from Prussia, but rather from Central Europe and the Holy Roman Empire, where you have what um, Joachim Wally calls the feudal nexus, becoming feudalism moving into kind of a federalism, that's very strong and remains during the Holy Roman Empire very important. Mac Walker picked up on this. You, le- you see that difference, varieties of German is coming together as an aggregate or part and parcel of German culture, German history through the 18th and 19th century. And it makes a lot of sense then that when you get the creation of a unified nation state through the wars of unification of Bismarck, you nevertheless have a federated structure that leaves cultural affairs in the hands of the different states, the different lenders, so-called. As a result, arguments about how things will take place, transformations in cultural, social, policy, and New Imperial Germany oftentimes debated at the level of the different federated states and the different groups, and in many cases, the notion of a tribe will be part and parcel of that political language. And you can see it. You can see it in the Reichstag debates. You can see it in all the political documents. You can see it in many different arguments about creation of new associations. So, in that sense, um, this is where this notion of German polycentrism is incredibly important. Because, for example, when I studied. Um, Kunda Museum or ethnographic museums, there wasn't one. It wasn't centralized in, like in London or in Paris or even Washington, D.C., where all the great documents and things go to one place. It went to a variety of different places simultaneously. and There were very few German groups in any of those places, say in the Rhineland, who were willing to give up their archaeological patrimony to Berlin. They might send them copies, but they weren't going to send them the originals, regardless how important Berlin was to the center of the state. This is true at the end of the 19th century, just as it is in the beginning of the 1870s. It actually remains true today. Um, so in that sense, you have polycentrism in Germany being this notion that there is no center. Nobody's leading necessarily, but there's sort of a competitive, complementary, cooperative association of groups. And that's very important. It's a, it's a different sort of notion of Germanist than one might find if you were to, say, pursue, what well, I was about to say, if you were to pursue Runke. But actually, Runke's histories of the Middle Ages and early modern period would agree completely. Mm. He just has a teleological argument that goes to a more unified German nation, whereas someone like Herder who's writing earlier, isn't necessarily hitting, hitting in that direction. But it sort of recognizes and values uh, the differentiation and the ways in which... The strands sort of braid together to make this central notion of Germanness, but they don't necessarily all run into a hegemonic whole or a unitary. Um, yeah, I, I guess the other, you know, so in that sense, these notions of tribalism and this this idea of German polycentrism, be it cultural or political, very much complement each other, I think. Um, and then this notion of the devotion to resistance, I think, is is part of this as well, because on the one hand. Um, and this is very typical when people study German national history, that on the one hand you have a centralization of Germany as a nation state, as a political body, that's certainly centered around Berlin increasingly. Yet at the same time, people on in other parts of Germany are always resisting that dominance. I mean, you know, you don't have to study Württemberg very long or Hamburg or Bavaria to know that you know, complete acquiescence to Prussian policy just doesn't happen Um But it's not just that. It's also the notion of resistance to other areas. So I think, again, when you think about the history of the Holy Roman Empire, Central Europe at this time, there's a long legacy of what it means to resist encroachment from different sides. Because, after all, this feudal nexus that Yaka Whaley writes about is is very much about um, overlapping uh, vassalage, overlapping uh, patronage, overlapping uh, sovereignties. And law systems in which everyone is jockeying for position constantly and resisting any effort to homogenize the total whole. I mean, that's the strength, and Mike Walker wrote about this as well, of the Holy Roman Empire, is that it doesn't allow anyone to get too strong, and the weakness actually allows for a great degree of freedom. So in that sense, I think when when many Germans saw parallels with the way in which American Indian tribes worked, there was always this hope that there would be sort of a unification of American Indian tribes around Tecumseh or some other great leader. But there was also a recognition that every single tribe, even within the tribes, were fractured and divided, and that they were at best a conglomerate, an ideal whole, but never a unitary group. And and that, I think, leads to a lot of affinity, too, particularly among people who spent much time thinking about or studying them in depth. And when that is a characteristic of the German fascination, it's that people don't have to be in academic circles or working in museums or be scholars to think long and hard about these kinds of relationships. This is happening on the ground in everyday life among people who are literate, but not necessarily highly educated.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. It's wonderfully put. Um, I think that one of your most interesting chapters, and I, and, and I, I'm gonna ask this question as a way of getting at another of the important kind of, um, thematic threads or, or sort of, uh, conceptual threads of the book, uh, which is the idea of a Kulturkreis, which we might translate into English as, to mean something like cultural sphere. And you have this really interesting way of looking at, Uh, first of all, I mean, you make the point early on in the book that saying someone was German in the 19th century could mean that he or she came from any number of places in Europe, Romania, what later becomes Yugoslavia, uh, what later becomes, uh, um, well, certainly parts of Poland uh, and other places. I mean, uh, this putative German person could have been from any number of places and then, of course, any number of other places within what later becomes the German Empire. Um, And you talk about the movement of... People of German speaking people from Europe to North America and back again. You have all kinds of interesting information about, you know, enormous German language newspapers in major American cities, which were actually bigger, subscri- uh, more subscribed newspapers, in fact, than some newspapers in Germany itself. Uh, big newspapers, big city newspapers. Um, and I think one of your most interesting chapters, and I think it was in chapter three, or this is part of chapter three, I believe, deals with iconic paintings of the American West many of which were um and this was news to me were done by German painters so that the popular image that many Americans myself included might have of the West is in some ways a German image or was created by Germans so this is just one of the ways that you show this constant transmission of ideas, of, of images, of information from Germany to the U.S. and back again, and changing all the time in the process. So I wonder if you, if you could talk about that a little bit, and, um, and, and maybe this Kulturkreis idea and how, that, uh, how you found that so useful in writing this book.
2: Um, well, the Kulturkreis is actually sort of a loaded term, because on the one hand, this is a term that's developed at the end of the 19th century. By German ethnologists uh, to try and make sense of what they're how they're seeing transformations in, in different groups of cultures. Um, it's a term that's not really used very. Uh, this would be what in, in sort of historiography of the history of anthropology called the diffusionists in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a term that doesn't get a lot of use anymore because uh, the diffusionists, as they wrote about it, tended to think of unitary cultures. And the, the Kreis were really circles on a paper that you could see expanding and moving, a little bit like amoebas, but certainly taking over and flowing into different places. And there wasn't a lot of uh, space for hybridity or transformation in those theories. So people wouldn't use them tend not to use them very much today, but then they also shy away from terms like tribe and anthropology right. as well. Yes. Um, so, as you can see, I, I don't shy as much away from those. I also found it interesting, fascinating, really, that at the same time these Germans were, uh, these German ethnologists were developing these notions, these concepts, that actually something very similar was going on with German culture or German cultures in the plural Mm. as they were flowing across the Atlantic with millions and millions of German immigrants coming into places like the United States where they not only were just moving to these major cities and and living in huge um, communities in these cities, but also spreading across vast open spaces. And there's a, there's a a fascinating um, it's there's a lot of contingency involved. What happens is that as many of these Areas in the American Midwest are opened up through treaties and created as territories, which we later recognize as states. This is all going on in the middle of the 19th century when we had a high point of German immigration into the United States. And one of the things that sets German immigrants aside or apart from a lot of European immigrants at this time is that in general, not everyone, but in general, they tend to be literate, well-educated, and skilled which means that you don't have impoverished farmers or impoverished agricultural labor coming over. Rather, you have farmers who have left one set of farms and are going to get better ones in the American Midwest. So they come over and they know exactly what they want to do and they're very good at it. And as a result, everyone here... Who wants to build states out of territories, governors and officials? They're advertising in Germany to get the Germans, to get many Germans to come over and settle these areas. So, places, there's a reason why you have this German triangle that runs from Ohio, from Cincinnati, down to St. Louis and up to St. Paul, and this area in which there's really what can only be called a vibrant multilingualism, multiculturalism all across the 19th century that's very, very strong until the outbreak of the First World War. Um, And this, to me, is really exactly what those 19th century German ethnologists were thinking about when they were talking about a kulturkreis or a cultural sphere or a circle. But what you have is a flowing of German culture across the Atlantic, Into North America, which allowed an individual like the one Rudolf Kronau, who I wrote about in that chapter, Mm. to simply come across on a boat, get off, and never have to speak English, because he's welcomed by German relatives, distant and close. He moves into German circles. He's introduced to German scientific societies, German politicians in the city of New York, who then introduce him to others. There's a German-American organization, that he ha- he later becomes very important in, and he travels up and down the East Coast speaking to Germans. He goes into the, <laughs> basically <laughs> into the U.S. government and meets Carl Schutz, who's a fellow Rhinelander who gives him permission to go to American Indian reservations. And then, as the chapter shows, he basically travels across the Northeast and across the Midwest, going through these towns, just reading newspapers the whole way. And you're absolutely right. If you pick up a bibliography of German language publications, periodicals in North America. Um, from this period, what you'll find is it's gigantic. And you don't just have one or two German newspapers in a state like Minnesota, you have many. And you have many, and sometimes in a single city, like um, St. Paul or St. Louis, or certainly in uh, Minneapolis uh, and Milwaukee and uh, it is also in Ohio and all these states. Um, So there are vibrant German cultures, and they live... The people who live in them, um, I think in many ways Kathleen Conson, who used to teach at the University of Chicago um, and wrote a lot about Germans in Minnesota, captured this very well when she talked about the fan and landscapes in which people live, mm. in which, on the one hand, they become American. This is the thing. A lot of them gain American citizenship very quickly, they settle, they're American now. But at the same time, they never stop being German, and they can do both of those things simultaneously without much trouble for a long period of time. And when they move within German-speaking circles on that landscape, they're living within one context. When they interact with English-speaking circles, they move within another context. And there's no problem doing that for There's some tensions between Anglo-Americans and and German-speaking Americans, of course. But for the most part, this is something that's very easy for them to do. Uh, And this fascinated me because what it meant was there's a whole area of German history that had been largely neglected. And the reason it had been neglected is because it became immigrant history, or immigrant history of either outward migration of Germans, written from the perspective of Germans, or inward migration of Germans in the United States, written as American history or American immigrant history. Um, but what it wasn't anymore was it what it what it just stopped being. What these people stopped being was part and parcel of the broader German history. So we have lots and lots of material written on the small German colonies and how important they are to uh, uh, to Germany for all sorts of reasons. But really. The extension of German culture and society and German people across the Atlantic North America is really the big show. This is where it's going on, and there's now even today, you know, cultural markers in Germany where people make joke about jokes about the rich uncle from America, um, and that's because so many people knew someone who had been or was in the United States during this time period. And there's lots of great work that's been done on the letters that go back and forth. And and other historians who've written on the 19th century, like David Blackburn, for example, mention this in, in their books. But what's really interesting is pick up an American history textbook and find the Germans. See if you can find them. You won't find very many, and you certainly won't find a story. Not in the textbooks. In the monographs, yes, there's many monographs about this kind of thing, but that doesn't get integrated into American history. And for me this was fascinating because as you mentioned, with with the artists is one example, um the Dusseldorf School of Art is very important in landscape painting, and a lot of people who, who either grow up in the United States and want to paint American landscapes are interested in studying there, who grow up in Germany and want to paint American landscapes mm. study there, or grow up in both places. Um, so what we find is that the production of iconography about the American West is really a transcultural production in a lot of ways. Not just transnational, but a lot of these individuals, well, it depends on the context they're moving. Um, when when you try and categorize them, right? I mean, to some of these German-Americans in Germany are recognized as Americans, but in America are thought of as the Germans, right? right? So depending on the context they're in. But what they really are is they're German-Americans who live easily in both worlds and whose ideas about art and about the American West are being shaped by both of those worlds simultaneously. And they're very, they're very successful. And as you said, a lot of these these big paintings that would find one would find in the state house in Missouri or in the U S Capitol are being done by some of these Dusseldorf artists. Um, and, and they, you know, the, yeah, they shape the the image of the American West, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic.
1: Yes. It's wonderful. It's so interesting. Uh, of course, then my, the, the question I wanted to ask you sort of following out of this, uh, is, uh, is, a let's say, um, a, somewhat darker chapter which has to do with uh, as Germans indeed in in enormous numbers as you pointed out moved further and further into the American West uh, they uh, also you know were involved like other uh, other European settlers were in the settler colonialist project to claim American Indian land for their own use um, and u- ultimately to claim territory for the United States so, uh, how have Germans dealt with that uncomfortable fact over time I mean that is um, that's one of the most interesting parts of your book for me I, I thought you know there's this there there is this deep affinity which people notice that Germans have for for American Indians but there's also this darker chapter so how, how has that been a part of the story that you tell in the book
2: well it, it's it, it's quite interesting because on the one hand um, what fascinated me fascinated me for example you know i wrote the one chapter on um on new old minnesota and uh what's now called the dakota conflict where about 800 settlers mostly german were eradicated uh and a conflict as as dakota indians rose up against a lot of well a lot of problems that they were having with the us government and and struck back at at settlers who were who were right nearby um And what became clear is, of course, uh, this history, uh, what you could call a a colonial context or a colonial situation, a German colonial situation, is not part and parcel of the historiography of German colonialism. This was the first thing that was really important to me, is that when you read the history of German colonialism, when people try to take, for example, and draw lines between um, colonialism in Africa and German actions in Eastern Europe and things like this, The story of German settler colonialism, the way in which they're involved in settler colonialism with other states, is not included. That, I thought, was a conspicuous absence that needed to be addressed. Um, And also, I wondered why I hadn't known more about it. Mm. Um, But then the other thing is that, um, in many ways, when you read the history, uh, either of the American West written in German, or if you read the accounts of what's going on in the West in German that are contemporary to these moments and these events where you have conflict – the Germans who are on the ground, uh, who are engaged in the conflict, are seen very much as Americans and settlers. And the, the, the very strange thing, the thing that took me a lot of time to understand and appreciate, was in the context of the new old conflict, the conflict in Minnesota. In a lot of ways, Germans back in Europe are reading about this. They're very much rooting for the Dakota Indians. mm they're not, they're not rooting for, for the German right. settlers at all. And in fact, the, the victory, as they would later call it, of the Dakotas over these – these the eradication of people and the movement of them out of 23 counties, I believe the number is, southern Minnesota was seen as just evidence of the prowess of the Lakota and the Dakota and the Sioux and their, their ability to resist the encroachment. And this was something that, well, it's essentially lauded Um now, on the ground, the individuals who suffered at the hands of the of these uh, these battles, these attacks, um, were not laudatory at all. Uh, they, were, they very much acted just like other American settlers, um, and they, too, wanted to uh, react. They wanted to uh, push back. They wanted to kill, um, and that's exactly what happened. And a lot of the Germans on the ground then jump up. They join the military, and they help pursue these same groups of Indians out into the Dakota territories. Um, so – the problem then becomes one of categories, mm. right? I mean, they're German, and yet they're also American. They're, they're European. They're also white. They're, uh, they're many things simultaneously, and the different contexts matter quite a bit. The different moments matter quite a bit, and they string together in ways that aren't necessarily intuitive if you're used to reading national historiographies.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, Germans under National Socialism... Just to move ahead in time a little bit, we uh, were no less fascinated by American Indians than their predecessors had been, uh, or later generations of Germans would be. I wonder if you can speak for a few minutes about the relationship uh, of mm, the relationship of Germans, uh, Germans under National Socialism, to American Indians. What changed then, or didn't change? I mean, the Nazis also looked to the American colonialist uh, project of of colonialist expansion and settler colonialism in the West, in the American West, as a model, as people like you and also David Blackburn and others have pointed out, uh, as a model for how they viewed Eastern Europe in the 1930s and 40s and their drive to colonize it. So can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Right. I I, I mean, again, I think one of the important things to bear in mind is that there are um – there are multiple discourses about American Indians that run through German political history. And some of them uh, fit very much into the notions that I've been talking about up until now, which really reverberate with ideas of cultural pluralism and, and difference and resistance and things like that. Those all exist and they continue to exist right through the 20th century. At the same time, there are many people who are very interested in notions of uh, modernization, of states, modernization, of settlement, and um, transformations of large states who see – um, indigenous populations, whatever kind they might be, as impediments to the kinds of progress they want to engage in. So we have examples of German settlers in South America, for example, very much promoting the eradication of indigenous groups there mm-hmm. uh, because they want to create farmland. They want to help in a, a nationalization project, for example, in southern Brazil. At the same time, we also have people engaging in the kinds of cultural pluralist arguments that I, I made a minute ago. Um, so those things coexist. And this is that one of the things that I think is very important to bear in mind when we write cultural histories, is that there aren't single strands, there aren't single histories, there aren't linear histories that exist and one replaces another. They exist side by side. They don't necessarily always compete either. This is the other thing. Sometimes they overlap and fold together quite easily. And then at certain moments, one might come up and dominate more than the other but the other never really disappears. It may come back later. And so this is, I mean, this brings me to the argument, I think, that runs through the book that in many ways, I think, for the historiography in Germany is most important, and that's the relationship between continuity and rupture across longer durées. And the point about national socialists is, yes, they were not that much different than other Germans when it came to many many things that had to do with what they liked about American Indians. I mean, they too were interested in uh, tribalism, devotion to resistance. They too had longings for freedom. They too had a melancholy sense of assured fate. those things that you, uh, that you, that you listed off. But what those things meant to them in their particular context in the middle of the 20th century and in interwar period were different um, than what happened, what, what came about before. They had different, slightly different resonances. Um, so for example, you have Hitler youth playing Indian just like people did thirty years before or thirty years after. But one of the things they would emphasize is sort of a leadership principle, right? Mm-hmm. Which was which doesn't have as big a role in the post-war period, and hadn't had as big a role in the earlier period. So they found a way in which to fold in fascist values to ideas that already existed about American Indians. So they they harnessed them, and one of the one of the words people like to use is to instrumentalize um, the ideas that already existed about American Indians for their particular political purposes. So I have a chapter in the book where I basically show that most political groups did this and found ways in which to draw on a set of notions, ideas, tropes about American Indians, use them to their own purposes. And this happens again and again and again, and it continues to happen today. Um, so in that sense, not so different. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and this, this point about the eradication, though, that becomes quite interesting is the way in which um, national socialists oftentimes were engaged in a set of arguments that contradicted each other. Because on the one hand, there was a great lauding of the strength of warriors. I mean, National Socialists loved Tecumseh, just like Germans in the 19th century, Germans in the post-war period. They had many lessons to learn about the powerful American Indian resisting the encroachment of white settlement and American imperialism. At the same time, they also looked to the United States for a model of how to eradicate indigenous groups and expand as an imperial power. So I have this line in the book where I say that for, for national socialists, Germans were both good to, I mean, Indians were both good to emulate and to eliminate. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is one of the things I found most fascinating is that you could have these arguments exist simultaneously in national socialist ideology without anybody really seeing or caring about the contradiction
1: yeah and 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 you know what's so interesting too, is that at the same time that uh, and i I really think that this, this is maybe in some ways my favorite part of your book uh, at this at, at the same time that Germans could sort of think with uh, American Indians and use the image that they created in their minds in some ways of the American Indian to understand things about themselves um. There's also a very fascinating – this is not just a history of projection. It's not just a history of discourse. It's not just a history of what Germans wrote about – thought about said about american indians over time over two centuries essentially but it's also there's also a story about the interaction of american indians with germans so that there's a um which i think i believe and i don't just mean sort of in, in the american west in the sorts of context that we've been talking about but i mean nowadays there are um these alliances between germans and and native americans and i wonder if you could talk about some of those alliances and the politics of that a little bit
2: Sure. Uh, well, this is the other one. That, I mean, this is one of the other things that I find quite interesting is that um, as I was doing this research, I, I not only, as I, I mentioned earlier, I not only did research in, the United, in, in Germany but also in the United States, and that took me to many um, different American Indian reservations. And I spent a lot of time on the Pine Ridge Reservation in particular because, um, on the one hand, as I as I mentioned with the Minnesota. Uh, Incidents: uh, the Lakota, the Dakota, the Sioux, in general, were a group of a group of American Indians um, that the Germans were particularly interested in at the end of the 19th century. And there are numbers of reasons for that. And one of the reasons, of course, is they're one of the last holdouts in this big expansion across the West and, of American imperialism. But the other reason is because uh, a lot of the people who went to the went to Germany as performers who took part in um, exhibitions of non-American, non-European peoples, which are called Fokushan, which also very much like um, Wild West shows when it comes to American Indians. A lot of these people came from Pine Ridge. And in fact, by the time we get to the turn of the century, after we've had the first visit of Buffalo Bill's Wild West to Germany um, and the rest of Europe, you have essentially a group of people become professional performers who enjoy working in Germany. And there becomes... Across a lot of these different reservations, networks of people who spend a lot of time getting their family members into these different kinds of performances. And the ones who go to Germany oftentimes want to go back because they like the way they treat it. They like the way they can live. They like the food. They like they like the beer. Um, And. And what happens then is you get Germans who are already interested in American Indians who haven't been able to travel to the United States at this time coming to the circuses, coming to the performances, coming to the Wild West shows and talking to these people because they didn't just perform. They also afterwards went and hung around and people came and met with them. And a lot of the people were really fascinated, started to engage in friendships, exchange ideas, exchange goods, learn things from them, study them. And so you get this whole culture of emulation that develops in the 20th century, um, which basically sees its tie point, I guess, in the development of these hobbyist groups in Germany that continue to emulate um, American Indians. But part and parcel of this is also these American Indians who then pay attention to what's going on in Germany. And so it's not at all uncommon to run into people who have thought about the organization of Germans and actually have read about or talked to Germans and seen that they too actually believe or, or are willing to believe these notions of German tribalism, German affinity, and to take them quite seriously, not as projections, not as fantasy, but actually as similarities, backgrounds, relationships. And, As this takes place, as people start to think in this way, particularly after the interwar period and after the Second World War, in the postwar period, there are then movements that take shape where you have hobbyist movements in Germany, which began as sort of associations where people get together and have fun and become increasingly more scientific, ethnologically oriented for some of them, more serious. And then eventually you get groups that want to just devote themselves to helping American Indians. So they're not just learning about Indians who live in the past, but people who live in the present, their own presence. And they talk a lot about the challenges they face on reservation, with poverty and violence. And they do things like collect money and write up petitions and send them to American officials and contact people directly and ask how they can help, how they can pitch in. Sometimes they travel over and they volunteer. Sometimes they travel over and move into communities and live there and stay there. Uh, So these relationships, these kinship networks, starts to develop across the the Atlantic again. So when you get to the end of the the post-war period, the 1970s and 80s, with the rise of the American Indian movement, you have a huge support group in both East and West Germany that's quite eager to engage in American Indian politics in the United States and Canada and support them in whatever ways they can. And they actually end up collecting pretty significant sums of money. And other other things as well uh, for these various groups. And near as I can tell, um, for, they're appreciated. So there's lots and lots of interaction that goes back and forth.
1: Yeah. Do you do you have any sense? And and it's something that's occurred to me before, but I've never I've never thought about it a lot until I was reading your book. But I wonder if you have any sense of of this being. Um, a particularly, in other words, the commitment of a lot of Germans to the co- to various uh, po- political and social causes of Native Americans. Uh, is this something that we can find among other groups of people in the world, that same kind of commitment? Are the Germans really, in, in this sense, um, somewhat unique? Well, I,
2: I think this is true in general with, um, with the whole theme, all of the themes that run through the book. I, I think you can find hobbyists, people who emulate American Indians all across Europe. You can find them in the United States, too. Mm. But there's no question that the concentration and the degree of seriousness in that concentration is uh, the focal point is Germany. Um, You can also find uh, people willing to donate money and time and work on American Indian reservations all across Europe and other parts of the United States. But there's also no question that there's a greater concentration of people in Germany willing to do this. And I've actually seen letters written by people like Dennis Banks and others that are – sitting in archives currently where they say, you know, the amount of money uh, that we've received from people in East Germany is greater than anywhere else in Europe, or the number of signatures we have on petitions are longer than other places. So there there was already a recognition among people in the American Indian movement in in the early 1970s, for example, that if you wanted to get some sort of outside support to help put pressure on the U.S. government or the Canadian government, a really smart place to turn first was Germany and actually the Germans would help you get signatures from people in like France and Italy and anywhere else, everywhere else as well
1: mm, Fascinating well Glenn Penny we've taken up an enormous amount of your time and we've so appreciated talking with you I've so appreciated talking with you um, I wonder though if, if you would just spare us or indulge me for just a few more minutes and, and please let us know what you're working on now because I'm sure that many listeners would be very interested to hear about that
2: Right well Actually, what ended up happening was that as I was starting to study these uh, German communities all across North America, um, I also became quite interested in similar kinds of communities across Central America and Latin America, in general, South America and Central America. Um, so I spent the last four years doing a lot of projects on German communities all across the southern cone of uh, South America and up into Central America, and I'm working on, on two big projects now. and one is um, called Network Spaces, and it's about German schools in Latin America. Um, and the reason it's focused on the schools is because there's a there are mired communities of Germans that get created all across Latin America. They're quite different, but one of the things they all have in common is the, the creation of churches and schools uh, almost immediately once communities take shape. And those schools persist over a much longer period of time than most of us would recognize. So in some places like Santiago de Chile, you can have a German school that's been in the city that's working on its eighth generation of, of German Chileans. Um, so what I'm doing with this is, is basically trying to pull together relationships of communities and trace out of transnational networks that get overlooked in national histories and think about the ways in which Germans quite easily, just as they did in the United States, simply go abroad, take up new lives, become citizens of other states – and then continue to be German. <laughs> right. Um, and the one aspect of this is what goes on in Guatemala, which to me is, is fascinating because Guatemala has the largest concentration of Germans in Latin, in Central America. And most of them, a large number of them, are, are tied into the coffee Uh, The coffee business, basically, where they create vertically integrated industries, coffee industries. Coffee is one of the two major products coming out of Guatemala at the time. So Germany is responsible for a huge amount of the gross national product. Um, At the same time, uh, most of that coffee is flowing into Germany. So you have basically finance, capital, um, know-how. And labor, in terms of intellectual labor, coming out of Hamburg, coming out of Germany, going into Guatemala, setting up huge coffee plantations, uh, improving the coffee plantations, and most of that coffee then is flowing back into Hamburg and being sold on the coffee exchange. And again, to think about the history of German colonialism that gets written, it doesn't incorporate this kind of connection which actually financially is much more much more important for, for the German state than any of those official colonies that it had um, and it's also built on a very long connection between Hamburg and Guatemala which you know, again predates the, the nation state's history persists through the radical ruptures that go through the 20th century and continues to a large degree into the post-war period so that, that's the
1: second project This is wonderful stuff. And I mean, I'm just listening to you talk and thinking about the book and thinking about what you're working on now, just the, the all the new sort of avenues that your work is opening up. Um, for your own work, but I think also for people coming behind you. And I think that's a um, marvelous contribution to our, to our shared project of German history in the world. So um, Glenn Penny, we've enjoyed talking to you so much. The book is called just to remind everyone briefly, kindred by choice Germans and American Indians since 1800. It was published very recently. Just uh, was it in 2013 or or, no, it must be in 2013 at the very end by the university of North Carolina press in Chapel Hill. Um, Glenn, thanks again and uh, I hope you have a. I hope you enjoy the rest of your week thanks very much okay goodbye bye
0: bye it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper